pray. Let me just say uh, that uh, I've decided just to take a week break from our series in Acts uh, for various reasons, but uh, we're going to look uh, into a theme today I think that's helpful for all of us, particularly on, a Lord's, on the day when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father, take the familiar themes that we're going to be looking at today, and would you give us a fresh and a very clear and sharp perception, Lord, of these realities, that they would not be just things that we talk about and sing about, but Lord, that we, they would be things that evoke from our hearts a sense of wonder, amazement, and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up hearing my father describe a situation that was totally uh, foreign to me. My father described that his family, every so often, would have a stranger come to their back door and knock on the back door and request food. And so my dad explained to me that his family would uh, give this individual very generous portion of the same food they had been eating, usually leftovers, uh, where they'd go make something else, and they'd serve them delicious food, and they'd hand it to them, and the person would eat the food on the back steps in the back of the house. And most of us, and I think when I heard that, I thought to myself, wow, what a, what a gracious thing to do. And on one level, that's true, and using the word gracious that way was a gracious thing. But back in those days, destitute individuals, indigent men who were really in tough times, they would oftentimes come to the back door asking for a meal, and they would offer to work in exchange for that meal. And so my dad said oftentimes they would be out doing chores around in the yard in exchange for that food. Now that obviously would change the gracious nature of such a gift of the food, then it doesn't become grace anymore, it just becomes a bartering. I'll give you this, you give me that. But in order for us to understand more accurately this idea of what I'm going to talk about this morning of God's grace, divine grace, <clears throat> is far different than what we, I think, normally tend to think. Let me just switch the scenario around a little bit so that we can get the idea of the force of the, the biblical understanding of grace so suppose the man who knocks on the back door of my father's family's house, suppose he had been the one who had been stealing their vegetables all summer long, and they knew exactly who it was that had been doing it. Suppose he's the same individual who during the winter months previously had been caught stealing firewood from the side of the house. Suppose he was also the person who was seen uh, snatching uh, other items of value around the property. And it's this individual who shows up and at that point knocks on the door and asks for a plate of food. Now, instead of calling the police, suppose my father's family says, oh yes, we'll be glad to provide you a well-cooked, delicious meal. Just sit down, we'll bring it to you. At that point you would say, well, the man did nothing to deserve the meal, because he did no work. As a matter of fact, if you add the element of the fact that the food there, we could say, is not only unmerited, but in this instance, the man deserved not food. He deserved to be punished. He deserved to have his wrongdoing brought to the authorities, and he would therefore uh, be 
definitely not shown any kind of food or any kind of favor at that point. What's amazing is that he would be given a valuable gift despite his record of doing wrong. And that's the idea that I want us to be sure we see in looking at this wonderful, amazing topic of God's grace. I have a definition there from you, for you in the notes there, according to Jerry Bridges, and that was that scenario I was using from an article I read he wrote a while ago. But here's a, a more accurate understanding of divine grace. He says, God's favor through Christ to people who deserve his wrath. People who deserve his wrath. You know, this idea of amazing grace is such a widely sung song. I did a little research on that, and I'm sure I didn't do a very extensive amount. But it's become so popularized in our culture, this song. Uh, I'm told that it's performed, I don't know who came up with the statistic. I'm such a skeptic when it comes to statistics, I'm sorry. But there's somewhere online that said it's performed 10 million times each year. Well, beyond all that crazy statistic, how about this? How about it's the most recorded song ever? Someone came up with a statistic of 6,600 times someone has recorded the singing of that song with various forms of accompaniment, or they've sung it a cappella. Why is that so popular? Do they really understand the words, is what I'm trying to understand. But I'll tell you, people like Paul and Peter, they didn't try in any way to diminish the amazing truth of God's grace. As a matter of fact, because they were so marveling at God's grace, they never covered up their sins. They made it clear that they were not only lacking in merit in terms of their relationship with God because they knew that they have compromised and many times they have done things by their words and actions which were offensive to God, and therefore they in many ways had a demerit. They had a long record of offenses before God, and yet God, despite the fact they deserve judgment, God deals with them in grace. It's no wonder they wrote about God's grace in the writings of Scripture. It's Peter who says in 1 Peter 5.10, he celebrated the God of all grace. Isn't that something? Peter, the one who Oftentimes, you know, he denied the Lord and all the things he did when he's telling the Lord, you know, you'll, you'll never die, you know, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's Peter who had so many ways in which he fell short, and yet he celebrated, and no wonder, the grace of God. Well, in our time together this morning, I want us to look into God's Word. I want us to think through and search for answers to two questions. The first question, you could put it this way, what's so amazing about God and His grace? But I'll put it another way. I would like to say, how do we understand the elements of God's amazing grace? I want us to think about different uh, elements of God's grace. First of all, that's the first point. Second point is to think through some practical ways that God's amazing grace makes a difference in our everyday lives. So put your seatbelts on. Here we go. First of all, we're going to understand the elements of God's amazing grace. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and he is facing this sense, this, this view of something that is, must have been filled with wonder and a little bit of fear and trepidation in the cloud and in the, the, the thunderous sounds coming from heaven. 
And God delivers his law to Moses. A law that says what? None of you are ever going to be able to keep this law. You're going to fall short in many, many, many ways. In that situation, Moses cries out, Lord, show us your glory. Show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, Yahweh, the Lord, is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He emphasizes his grace, having given his law, which would shut the mouths of all of us in that we were guilty and that we are lawbreakers. It's a phrase, by the way, that when that was repeated in Exodus 34, it's repeated three or four other times in the Old Testament. No surprise. And then you go to the New Testament, and the same is affirmed about Jesus Christ, emphasizing that he is one who's come, who is gracious. So that the Apostle John introduces Jesus in his gospel in this way. John chapter 1, he says, The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And what is that glory like? He is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John goes on to point out that Jesus was not one who just displayed grace once or twice. But if you look at verse 16 of John 1, it says, We have all benefited from the rich blessings that Jesus brought to us. What kind of blessings? One gracious blessing after another, one translation says. You see, God has displayed a superabundance of grace upon the human race. And that's sort of the first sub-point I want to focus on here this morning, and that is to notice the fact that God's grace in Christ is broad in one sense. In another sense, His grace is somewhat narrow. What do I mean by that? Narrow in its scope. God gives gifts to everyone indiscriminately. And his, his gifts include the fact that it says in Scripture, the Lord is good to all. Not just to some, but to all. In what way? Well, how many of you ever thought about the fact that the sunshine is a gift from God? That rain is a gift from God? And that that gift is given not just to some, a select number of people, but to everyone, right? Boy, did Pennsylvania get a lot of rain the other day. Man, oh man, we're driving in this rain. I'm thinking, wow, they are really, they are just, it was flooding. It was a very, a lot of accidents on the interstate. But what is it God gives us? He gives rain to people who live in our area and in different areas. He doesn't say, okay, I'm just going to rain, bring rain upon this yard. These people live here. Well, they're good folks. No, he gives rain to everybody. He gives sunshine to everyone. He gives breath to everyone. Relational connection and friendships. All these kinds of things that we take for granted. So we call this common grace. Common grace. Matthew 5, 45 talks about it rains in the sunshine on both the evil and the just. So we refer to common grace as that which is indiscriminately given to all. But then there's another kind of grace the Bible talks about. It's special grace. Or what we would call saving grace. And this refers to the fact that God 
bestows His favor upon those that He chooses for salvation. That there are those who receive special gifts. They're not given to everybody, but these are the gifts of adoption, the gifts of forgiveness, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to His chosen people. And those gifts, again, are evidences of God's saving grace. Unique gifts. They're not given to everyone, but to God's elect. Now, God's grace is not only broad and narrow, but it's also God's grace is free. Grace cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. Whether you're trying to do so by having a good character, or whether you try to do so by having a good performance record so that you say, well, I've done this, I did this, I did this. Therefore, come on, God, give me some grace. No, if grace were bestowed on the basis of some action that we took, it no longer would be grace. Here's a great text for that. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Here we read, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So that, for example, if you're at your job and you do your work, then you're what? You're paid for that work. You've done your work, you get paid for it. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So there you go. That's an example, and also Romans 3, verse 24, Paul emphasizes that unearned benefits are the result of Jesus' gracious work of salvation. He says, being justified as a gift, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's why Jesus told uh, the 72 when He sent them out on their sort of the ministry uh, testing and ministry training uh, opportunity in Matthew chapter 10. He says, freely you've received, now freely give. And so the idea is that God is under no obligation to us, his creatures. Least of all to those of us who are his rebels, who have renounced his authority and who has defied him as king. Salvation cannot be bought, it cannot be earned, it cannot be won by another person. And so one helpful quote along these lines is this. I thought this was helpful. This is by Archbishop Temple. He said this, The only thing of my own which I contribute to my redemption is my sin, from which I require to be redeemed. In other words, I have nothing to offer God in this regard. That's why it's called grace, because it is absolutely free. Then we have another aspect, another element of God's grace that ought to cause us to wonder and be filled with amazement, and that is this. God's grace is undeserved. Every sinner, and let me tell you, that includes everybody who's here today. If you're breathing and you're alive, you're in that, and you're in that group. We, as sinners, deserve eternal condemnation. But what we receive through faith in Christ is acceptance by God on the basis of grace. So listen to the logic now of how Paul thinks this all through and the amazing, instead of receiving what we deserve, 
Grace does just the opposite, which is what I was trying to illustrate at the beginning of my sermon. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not familiar with this text, I challenge you to read it and reread it and notice how many times Paul keeps saying it's by grace, by grace, by grace. Verse 3 of chapter 2. We were dead in sins. That is, we were not alive at all, spiritually speaking, because of our sins. We were indulging in the desires of our flesh. By nature, we are children who deserve wrath from God. But God, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, princess, by grace, you have been saved. I love that. By grace, you have been saved. We don't deserve that. We were what? We were dead in our sins. We were spiritually dead. We hadn't done anything to commend ourselves to God. We had nothing to offer Him. Then he says this, Why did God do that? In order that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing greatness of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My friend, every spiritual blessing that comes to sinners who come to Christ is on the basis of grace. That includes our justification, that includes all forgiveness of sin, that includes any kind of consolation and hope that we have. It's all based on grace. God's grace truly is amazing because it refers to God's benevolence to those who deserve the opposite. I don't know about you, but I've tried to look up the word wretch. W-R-E-T-C-H. Because that's the term that John Newton used, right, in the hymn, to a wretch like me. What does that mean? Well, modern translations say, a person you should feel sorry for. They're down on their luck, they're having a rough time, whatever. I don't think so. As I did some further study on it, I found it to mean this. It refers to a miserable person, one who has sunken, who has sunk down in deep distress. That is, you're in a bad place and you cannot get out of it. I think that's a helpful reminder of what a wretch is, and that's exactly what's true of us. It is nothing short of amazing that God willingly treats us, his creatures, not according to our merit, not according to our worth, but according to his own abundant kindness and overflowing generosity. That's grace, my friends. God's grace. Last thing I want to say here is that God's grace is also sovereign. It's sovereign. Here's what I mean by that. God is free to show grace to anyone he chooses to show it to. He is not under compulsion. He is not under obligation. That's what Ephesians 1 is saying. God chose us in Christ, chapter 1 of Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, predestined us to be adoption of, as sons according to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of what? Of these people who have really got their act together and they finally now have you know, made themselves uh, right with God? No. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He chose to do these things. He's taking these actions. It's all based 
to make his grace all the more magnificent. Can any of us honestly claim that we deserve to be rescued from sin and adopted by God? Here's a helpful quote by J.I. Packer. Only when it is seen that what decides each man's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. I don't know if you caught that. That's a little bit of a convoluted phrase. But what he's saying is, if you think it's something you deserve and you've done the right thing in order to, to receive it, then you'd have not begun to understand the concept of true grace, divine grace. If God was not gracious, we would have no reason to hope, no remedy for our sin, no escape from the consequences of our rebellion. I don't know about you, but I'm still astounded by grace. I, uh, if we had time, we'd sing through Amazing Grace several times. And we'd stop and repeat that phrase to a wretch like me. But we're not going to do that. We're going to keep going. I want to think through the application of this in our moments together here. Applying God's amazing grace to everyday life. How do we apply it? Well, first thing I think is so fundamentally important is to believe and cherish the gospel. Believe and cherish the gospel. You see, the grace of God confronts the pride of every unbeliever who loves to try to earn their own way, who loves to atone for their own sins. You see, there are so many people who love to think that one day they're going to reach heaven. Why? Because they think they deserve to be there. They think to themselves, listen, I don't have so much need of this grace. Because, listen, I... I'm confident that I know I am more deserving than that person, than this person, and I know for sure that person. And they have now begun to compare themselves with other people. At that point, they sound very similar to the Pharisee in Luke 17. You remember he stood up in the temple complex, right? I thank you, Lord, I'm not like this person, that person, this person. Remember? People who pride themselves in those things that they may have done or those things that somehow they avoided doing, and so therefore they think, oh, I didn't do that. Well, that person did that. So they see that as somehow they're going to gain a better standing before God because of that. May I say to you that anybody who thinks along those lines has never been humbled by the weight, the sheer massive weight of their sin when measured by the law of God. Indeed, we stand condemned. Every mouth has been closed to any kind of excuse or any reason as to why God should show us any kind of benevolent favor. The problem is that those po folks tend to measure themselves by themselves. And that's a dangerous ground to stand on. May I say to you, grace is treasured only by those who approach God as spiritual paupers admitting that they deserve to be condemned, admitting that they have nothing to offer God. At this point, if that's true of you, then is it not true that grace has become amazing to you, God's grace? Have you repented from your sin? The sin of 
thinking that you are better than other people or somehow more deserving or that you think you deserve to go to heaven, may I call you today to to extend your empty hands of faith, to cry out to Jesus Christ, save me, rescue me, I am a wretch. I am in a situation where I cannot escape from this awful situation I found myself in. Transfer your confidence to Christ alone. He alone suffered on the cross for you and your sins. He's the one who can provide forgiveness of sins on the basis of what He has done for you. Living a perfect life, dying for you on the cross, and being raised from the dead as your substitute. But secondly, let me just say that this grace of God does not just apply to unbelievers. It applies to those of us who claim to be and are believers in Christ. My friend, every disciple of Jesus desperately, desperately needs God's grace daily and continually. We need to celebrate God's grace on and on and on. For example, every Christian probably, I'm sure, if you're like me, you fight the tendency to focus on your outward performance. You start thinking about what you've done in terms of your pious deeds or things you know you should be doing in terms of the disciplines of grace. And, 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 and you look at your tendency to magnify your failings at times. You get so focused on what you've done wrong, you're overwhelmed sometimes with guilt. Sometimes you get overwhelmed with shame. May I remind you, and here's such a great quote in your notes. Again, Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace. Your worst days, think about what that is in your mind, in your life. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Oh, praise God for that. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And the church is quiet. Didn't get one amen on that quote. Thank you. Appreciate that. Somebody's still awake and somebody's listening. That's a true statement. That's a true statement from someone who is a follower of Jesus, and yet they realize, oh boy, do I need that grace from God. You see, our identity, our status before God is based entirely on Christ, on His atoning death, on his victory over the grave. And day by day we stand, Romans chapter 5, we stand in grace. Our motives to live the Christian life, they are not, our motives are not to somehow gain God's approval because God's grace has already bestowed that upon us. The motive we live the Christian life is because we're compelled to live for Christ, not out of duty, Not out of obligation, but out of a love for Christ. He showed us grace. He showed us this benevolence when we're His enemies. It is grace that produces, hopefully, by God's Spirit, the fruit of gratefulness. A desire to live for the glory of God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ is constrains us or controls us. It's what really motivates us to do what we do. I wonder how many of us really live that way. That the gospel becomes down 
the level of saying, what's motivating me here? Why, is I, why am I not motivated? Is it because I've lost sight of the gospel? I could further expand on that, but I want to move further to another aspect of application here, and that is to resist the promptings. Because of the grace of God, it will help us to resist the promptings of pride. Oh, you say, well, I don't have a problem with pride. Uh, I beg to differ. Pride, I believe, is the root sin of all the other sins in a person's life. And the grace of God, when reflected on each day, will really help us in tackling the ongoing challenges of dealing with our pride that lurk within our heart. This is found in James 4, chapter 6. If you look there in James 4, 6, he is echoing a passage from Proverbs chapter 3, and he confronts us with this very important reality. God is opposed, and that's a bad place to be. If God is opposing you, you don't want to be there. But God opposes the proud. But the humble, he is giving grace to. He gives grace to present tense. He gives and is giving grace to those who are humble. Humility relinquishes the desire to call the shots. If I'm humble before God, it means, okay, I'm not going to tell God what to be doing. Humility, then, will submit to God. It will submit to His authority. Humility will mean that I submit to God's wisdom in His Word. I submit to God's plans. I will submit to God's purposes. I will submit to God's sovereignty and His will, His providence. If I'm a person who truly is humble, it means that I am a person who is going to, over time, do a lot less of second-guessing God for His providence, for what He's chosen to allow in my life and not allow in my life. That is, if I'm single and I wish I was married, I'm not going to sit here and second-guess Him all the time. If I'm a person who uh, made a career choice at some point and I regret that, I'm not going to let that be something I resent God and make that come between me and Him. As a matter of fact, who are we to hold a grudge against God for the various plans that He has for us that may include difficulty? It may include struggle in our life. Who are we to say to God, Hey, what are you doing up there? These are areas where I think we struggle, and these are many area, other areas we can struggle with, with pride. But going over and over in our minds with the grace that God showed us in Christ will really help us in this regard. It helps us bring us down to where we realize you're knocking on the back door as the enemy of God asking for a gift you don't deserve. And lastly, I would just say, Another application of grace is that we need to, of course, the more and more we receive grace is that we need to be a dispenser of grace. A dispenser of grace. You see, the grace of God is a communicable attribute of God. You say, what are you talking about? You're using all these fancy words. Okay, communicable means we can imitate God on some level in this attribute, this characteristic of God. We can, be, we can do, on some level, become gracious like God. So God showers us with grace in Jesus Christ so that we might be a channel of grace to other people. So I use the illustration of a Brita pitcher. How many of you have one of these filter pitchers? You've seen them, you know. You, you basically lid the little lift. You have a little uh, lid here. You turn the faucet on. It fills it up with water. You let it 
filter down through this part here and it takes a while. And, and so then the water is filtered and then you proceed to pour out the water that has been filtered. And by the way, I'm quite thirsty, so thank you. You receive, like a Brita filter, it filters it through and then it pours it out. You don't use Brita filters to sit there and put flowers in and, and as a vase. It's used to be poured out. And so the same is true for us, it seems to me. The more I think and meditate on the grace that God has shown me, I begin to say, okay, Lord, how can I be a channel of your grace to those around me? You want a practical way to think about that? How about what you say with just your speech in dealing with other people around you? You say, what are you talking about? You want me to talk more about grace? Okay, I'll, say, I'll talk about God's grace. No, no, that's good too, but what about this? Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gets very practical in how the gospel makes a difference. He says, if the grace of God has filtered down into your soul, into your heart, guess what's going to come out of your mouth? Gracious words. Words that build up. Words that edify. Words that give life. Words that are uh, affirming and encouraging. Words that are giving truth to other people. Rather than what? Focusing on the faults of other people. Focusing on criticizing people, gossiping about people. Pointing out things that are distorted. Made, making ourselves look better by what we say. So we sort of embellish the truth a little bit or leave out things so that it makes it seem like we actually handled it better than we really did. And may I say also that one final thing here is the more and more we let the grace of Jesus Christ filter through our soul and our mind and our hearts, it becomes a part of us, then clearly it, it, at that point, having thought and, and, and marveled over the pardon shown to us at great cost to Christ, thinking about how satisfied the just demands of God have been satisfied through Christ, who Christ was punished and we were not, and that God has dealt with us in mercy and grace and showing us as condemned sinners the opposite of what we deserve. It seems to me you can't escape the fact that once that's filtered down through your heart and soul, you've got to be forgiving people around you. You've got to forgive people. You've got to let it go. You've got to give them what God gave you. Benevolence. Undeserved benevolence. And set them free. Set them loose. Say, I no longer am going to collect the debt you owe me. It's done. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray today that you would forgive so many of us who have spoken of your grace in such a superficial way. And Lord, we have neglected to let it filter down through us in a transformative way. And we have become too familiar with it at times. We've become, perhaps, Lord, uh, somewhat forgetful of what is involved in your grace. We've forgotten who we really were and what we have actually deserved from you. And so, Father, refresh in our hearts and minds, I pray, uh, a clear awakening of the wonders and the marvels and the amazing nature of your grace shown to us in Christ.
Even today, Lord, I pray that there would be, uh, if there's someone here, Lord, who's never come to Christ in simple faith and in repentance from sin, Lord, even today, would they receive this invitation to come to Christ and to be made alive in Christ, that they would be restored to Christ on the basis of grace and grace alone. Father, we pray that as we think about what Christ has done for us around your table, may you help us to think through how this grace will transform our lives and give us a different motivation, a willingness to let go of offenses, and a willingness, Lord, to be used of you to be a channel pouring out grace to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.